Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Christmas Eve edition. After a difficult loss for the Patriots, we're going to chat with Nora Princiati from The Ringer in just a little bit here to recap this game. But man, 22 to 18, the Patriots lose to the Cincinnati Bengals. And this game is just crazy on so many levels, but you felt like, okay, the Patriots are going to win. And Ramondre Stevenson fumbles the ball to five yard line. The Patriots are going in. Their win probability went from like zero to 100. Like that game was in the bag for them. And Ramondre Stevenson fumbles the football. And I know people are pointing out the fact that, hey, forward progress should have been stopped and all that. I don't give a shit about that. Don't fumble the ball in that particular situation. You can't do that. There's a lot of things to blame for the loss, but I'm not going to give Ramondre Stevenson an excuse for that. He's the best offense player on the team. Nobody's disputing that whatsoever, but you got to be able to hold on to the ball there. But man, it just was so gut-wrenching. This is an unbelievable game that Quite frankly, I thought the Patriots had no chance at winning. I'm sure a lot of you felt like the Patriots had no chance at winning whatsoever, especially after the second series of the game. I'm tweeting out, this is going to get real embarrassing. And it almost did get real embarrassing, right? And it was for the majority of the game. And then all of a sudden, in the second half, the Patriots start to figure some things out because it felt like in that first half, at halftime, that was rock bottom for the Patriots. And I know that the loss against the Raiders probably felt like rock bottom too because you had... At least you were going to go to overtime. He had that crazy play with Jacoby Myers, as we discussed much, as we discussed a lot after the game last week. But then you just look at this thing. You felt like, okay, the Patriots are dead. And for them to come out of halftime and play with that type of effort and really put themselves in a position to win the game, I was shocked that it happened. But also you think back in that first half, like all the stuff that went wrong, Pilardi just dropped the ball on a punt. Like the Patriots all season long, they've had the worst punting game of the NFL by the numbers. We went through it earlier this week and he just drops the punt, right? And the offense was so inept. That's what usually happens in the first half of the Patriots where they're 31st to the NFL in first quarter points. You feel like, all right, this is the Patriots. We know nobody's surprised the first two series of the game. The Patriots go three and out and three and out. 
But the thing that was surprising was the defense was so bad in the first half, right? So you go to that first quarter, 10 first downs for the Bengals, zero for the Patriots, 189 yards for the Bengals, 10 for the Patriots, 165 passing yards for the Bengals. The Patriots didn't have a passing yard in the first half or in the first quarter, rather. And it's not like Mac was throwing the ball a ton. He had like two attempts, but it's crazy. They were in like six plays in the entirety of the first quarter. First half in general, Joe Burrow had the season high in the entire NFL in terms of completions at a first half. More than anybody has had an entire half at a cap it against this Patriots defense. First half, 48 plays to 17, 278 passing yards to 29, 303 yards to 70, 40, or I should say 22 first downs to three. You have Hunter Henry running into Jonu Smith. Hunter Henry goes out of this game. He injures his knee running into the other tight end where you haven't got a ton out of either one of these guys this season. Hunter Henry, $15 million cap it, runs into Jonu Smith, $8.4 million cap it. They had 639 combined yards entering this game, and those guys just run into each other. It's kind of like everything that was going to go wrong for the Patriots in the first half did. You think about how bad the defense was in terms of that first series. Burrow finds Wilcox, eight yards. Burrow then finds Higgins, and this is a trend throughout the day, and Marcus Jones was great in this game. We'll get into some of the things he did insanely well today. But he's covering T. Higgins. He's given up eight inches. The guy's six foot four. Marcus Jones isn't even five foot nine, and you got him singled up against T. Higgins. Like, what do you think's going to happen, right? And then Burrow drops it off to Mixon. He runs for 17 yards. Mixon runs for five yards, and then Burrow to Higgins for a nine yard touchdown. That's their first drive. Their first drive is legitimately 100% success rate. Every play they had was successful, okay? Then you look at the second series of the game. You have a chance to get off the field, they have a delay a game. On And then on second and 12, Burrow finds Higgins for 11 yards, and then they pick up the first down. So even when the Bengals would screw things up in the first half, the Patriots really couldn't take advantage of it whatsoever. So that defense to me was the main culprit in the first half, because if you're going to win games, it's going to be because of your defense, not your offense. They didn't show up whatsoever. And this is sort of an interesting component to all this. How did that happen? How were they not ready to play? Like your season's on the line. And I get it. They came back furiously in the second half and all that. But how was the defense? I know how the offense wasn't ready to play in the first half. Matt Patricia, it's crystal clear. That's why the offense wasn't ready to go. But why wasn't the defense ready to go? It's perplexing to me. And now you look at it because the Patriots end up losing this game, even if you think they should have, which I do. You now look at the list of quarterbacks that the Patriots have beaten. Trubisky, Goff, Brissett, Wilson twice, Ellinger, and McCoy. Four of those guys have been benched, and McCoy's a backup. You've now lost to Burrow, Tua, Lamar, Rodgers, Fields, Cousins, Allen. So all these teams that have legitimate quarterbacks, the Patriots lose to. So that's why I always wanted to buy into this Patriots defense, but I needed to see them do it to a good quarterback. And they were good in the second half, but they were horrible in the first half. That's how you dug yourself that hole. One of the other things that aggravated you early in this game is... The timeout after the kneel down to end the half, what was the point of that? They called the timeout to take a kneel down, but everything sort of changed in that second half when you had the pick six from Marcus Jones, where Burrow, there was a miscommunication there and he takes it to the house. The next series, the Patriots defense gets a three and out and the offense comes to life, right? Because at that point in the game, it's 22 to six and your only touchdown is a defensive score, as we alluded to there, but then the offense starts showing up, right? So... Mac finds Myers, he finds Myers again, then he's sacked, and then he finds Johnny rolling. And then the biggest play of the game up until this particular point 
Mac finds Kendrick Bourne, 19 yards first down. And then Mac's trying to go back to Bourne again. He breaks up what should have been an interception for Eli Apple, a bad ball by Mac Jones, but it's Bourne that makes the play. Then Mac's incomplete to Jonu Smith, hospital ball he threw to him, didn't come back. He was dealing with a head injury there. But then again, Kendrick Bourne saves the day. You throw to Kendrick Bourne into triple coverage. What a catch. And then he found Bourne, of course, for a touchdown. You come back the next series. Bourne has another unreal catch, by the way, an end around for 29 yards in this game as well. Just big play after big play. And you had that crazy play where Mac, I don't know what he was thinking on the grounding penalty, but then they throw the ball into the end zone. And you're thinking to yourself, like, what's going on here? Scotty Washington, who I, I never heard of until today, he's in the end zone. He cannot come down with the ball. But then Jacoby Myers, who threw the ball away last week, ends up with the catch. And you're like, holy shit, the Patriots are back in this game. It's 22 to 18. What happened? And then it all comes down to that final series where, first of all, you had prior to the Patriots final offensive series, not the final one, the second to last one, the one where they should have ended the game. Judon, who has been great for this team all year, makes an insane play. He strips Jamar Chase, the best receiver on the other team. It's Marcus Jones who makes the recovery. And Marcus Jones is slow to get up. It takes him a while to get off the field. He's dealing with an injury. And you're like, oh, man, this sucks. Like Marcus Jones has been outstanding. He had the return for the touchdown on the interception. And then you're like, wait, hold on. He's back on the field. He has a huge play. He has a 15-yard reception where it's basically it's a short pass for Mac. And then Marcus Jones does all the work. You're like, holy crap, this is going to be an unbelievable story. The guy that was just hurt, the guy that had the pick six, he's back in the game. He makes a big play. And then, of course, we all know what happened. Stevenson put the ball on the carpet. But, man, that was just so infuriating to see how that game ended because it felt like this is going to be an unbelievable win. And from my perspective, this would have been like the first signature win of the Mac Jones error, because even the win against Buffalo last year, he only threw the ball three times. This was going to be that signature win. And I felt like this team, to their credit, they showed a lot of balls in this game to be able to come back after it looked like you were in a different league than the Cincinnati Bengals. And one thing I do have to point out, because I was talking about Kendrick Bourne, all these big plays he makes in terms of the 19-yard catch down 22-6, to the 32-yard catch in triple coverage. And then, of course, he had that unreal catch down the sideline. I mean, that was ridiculous. In real time, it looked like there was no chance he was in. Then you see the replay. You're like, holy shit, that wasn't even that good of a ball by Mac Jones. Somehow, he's able to get that second foot in to pick up that huge gain to extend the drive, so to speak. And you're thinking to yourself, wait, should I be happy about this? Should I be mad about this? That's where I'm at because I've been saying all year, you know me going back to the offseason, Kendrick Bourne, breakout year. He's going to be the star of this offense, right? If you look at some of the numbers from last year, Yak per reception, he was 7th in the NFL at 7.1. The rating when targeted, 132.1. That was 5th in the NFL. Today, he goes for 6, 100 yards, and a touchdown, 16.7 yards per reception. In the moment, I'm getting excited. I'm like, holy crap, this is it. Kendrick Bourne, they're finally playing Kendrick Bourne. And then you're thinking to yourself, wait, hold on. This offense has been this bad all season long, and you have that guy. How is that guy not playing? So as much as we saw an improvement in the second half offensively from this team, Matt Patricia looks horrible today. Bill Belichick looks horrible today. Why weren't you fucking playing this guy? This guy is a stud. I don't understand it. It's not like he's behind Jamar Chase and T. Higgins or he's behind Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk like he was when he was in San Francisco. That's not the case here. Not like he's behind A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith in Philadelphia. Who's he behind? Parker and Aguilar? Like, who's he not? Myers? Like, Myers is a fine player, but why isn't he playing? That guy you've had all season long, and you chose not to play that guy. It is such a bad look 
for the Patriots. It is such a disaster for them that this guy hasn't been playing all season long. All right, a lot more to get into in terms of this game in general, but I do want to get to this because this was the juicy thing that came out today, the juicy report and Rappaport of the NFL Network. He had a tweet out and then he had an article out that said, sources say Alabama offensive coordinator Bill O'Brien is a strong option to return to his former home and assume his old role as offensive coordinator under Bill Belichick for next season. Okay, now also in this story, Rappaport writes, when O'Brien joined Saban's staff at Alabama in 2021, he gave Saban a commitment to finish out his two-year contract. Okay, and we'll chat with Nora Princiati in just a little bit. We'll get her take on this whole Bill O'Brien back to the Patriots and why he wasn't here this year, why they didn't have somebody else. But it's interesting to me, right? Because so before we even get into what Bill O'Brien will mean for Mac, let's get to where this is coming from. I believe it's coming from the Kraft camp because Kraft prior to the game today realized what the temperature was, right? Where his team is a laughing stock. They just had that horrible loss in Las Vegas. And that was a complete joke. And Kraft has to be embarrassed, right? That Everyone in the media, everybody across the NFL said the Patricia thing isn't going to work. Think about it from your own perspective. Do you know one person that thought this is a good idea? Nobody besides Bill Belichick thought this was a good idea. Nobody did. So they put this out there through Rappaport. Well, hey, Bill wasn't going to take O'Brien from his friend. I mean, he's friends with Nick Saban. You don't want to take him away from Nick Saban, right? And this is what sort of irritates me about the whole thing is. So if the plan was the whole time to bring Bill O'Brien here, Screw the Saban relationship. If you were going to bring him here eventually, like if he's the offensive coordinator next year for the Patriots, who cares about the Nick Saban relationship? Bill's got to get his guy. I don't care how good of friends you are with him. And if that is the case, then there has to be somebody else in the NFL that is better at his job than Matt Patricia, because basically every offensive coordinator in the NFL is better than Matt Patricia. So the fact that that situation wasn't handled where, okay, if you, if you really are so loyal to Nick Saban that you're not going to bring Bill O'Brien in, then the answer can't be Matt Patricia. That's the most infuriating thing to me about this in totality is, so you're just going to wait for a year when you have a quarterback that's in his second year in the NFL, second year in the NFL. And you're saying, you know what? We want Bill, but I can't get him because of Nick Saban. So let's wait a year. No, I have no empathy for the Patriots whatsoever. If that's actually the thought process here, then get a better offensive coordinator than Matt Patricia. It shouldn't be very hard to find one. I also thought it was interesting. Remember, Kraft backed this move. He said, I think Bill has a unique way of doing things. This is over the summer. It's worked out pretty well up to now. I know what I don't know, and I try to stay out of the way of things I don't know. I think he's pretty good over 40 years of experience doing it. It doesn't sometimes look straight line to our fans or myself, but I'm results oriented. So Kraft backed that move. So now Kraft realizes, well, hold on. The results of our offense suck. And now what Kraft is doing is he's sort of like making an excuse publicly of why this has happened, right? Yeah, my team, my offense, it's a joke right now, but there's a reason for it. Nobody's buying into the excuse whatsoever. And the other part of this that's annoying to me is why is Bill O'Brien the only guy you could bring in? Aren't there other people out there? Like, I still have no idea why they didn't call Joe Brady, who's now working on the Buffalo Bills staff. The Buffalo Bills are one of the best teams in the NFL, and they promoted Ken Dorsey, but they also brought in another offensive mind in Joe Brady that why didn't the Patriots reach out to a guy like that, right? So I have no empathy for it whatsoever. And we know that Mac Jones was teaching Bill O'Brien the playbook when Bill O'Brien first got to Alabama two years ago prior to taking over after Mac won the national championship. So this would be a good thing for the Patriots next year. I mean, anything's better than Patricia, right? But I mean, you think about it. We know Bama's RPO heavy. Mac's been calling for more RPOs. We know Mac at the collegiate level, 19% of his dropbacks came out of RPOs. So that's a good thing. 
We know Watson in 2019 was fourth in attempts out of RPOs playing for Bill O'Brien at the NFL level. So he is exactly what you need in Mac Jones, right? The other thing is this. I just, I wish that Bill took what Sean McVay did with the Rams where he said, okay, Sean McVay was a great offensive mind. He said, you know what? My first hire is going to be Wade Phillips. And Wade Phillips ended up working out well for them for a while. But after he didn't want Wade Phillips anymore, he continues to go after established defensive minds. And that's what Sean Payton is doing right now as he's trying to get back into the NFL. He's going with Vic Fangio, who's one of the best defensive minds that we've seen in recent history of the NFL. Four years in San Francisco, three top three defenses. Okay, the other year he's fourth. Chicago, he had the number one defense one year. So then he goes to the Denver Broncos last year when he was fired. That team had the third ranked defense in the NFL from a points per game perspective as well. So everywhere this guy goes, he has great defenses. And another thing that sticks out to you about him is Bill Belichick actually used the same scheme and strategy that Vic Vangio used when he was the Bears defensive coordinator against the Rams on Monday Night Football. Bill took that and used that same strategy in the Super Bowl, right? So this guy was an elite defensive mind and is an elite defensive mind where Sean Payton's coming back to the NFL next year, it appears. He's saying, hey, I want to not worry about my defense. Why didn't Bill do that same thing with his offense where, hey, I know I'm an elite defensive mind but I got to get the best offense of mine out there or get an elite offense of mine. Why didn't he do that? It's so irritating to me that they only sort of promote from within, if you will. All right. In terms of Mac today, I thought that he was pretty good in this game in the second half, but all in all, there's just too many throws that stick out to you or say, you know what? A good NFL quarterback makes that throw early in the game. He misses Jacoby Myers on a play action pass. He had him. It looked like he was kind of scared of the hit that was coming, but he had Jacoby Myers. He missed him. He threw it behind him. And then on a third and five, he threw behind the sticks to Myers, who had no separation on Hilton whatsoever. Like, there was 0% chance that Myers was going to pick up the first down there, and that was the decision he made. He had a deep ball early in this game to Bourne that wasn't even close. First drive after half, Thornton can't make a catch, but and that was on that was a good ball by Mac. but Thornton's got to come up with that. But anyway, but then he throws one up to Bourne that Bourne had no chance at making the play whatsoever. He's got to break it up, as we alluded to the play earlier, on Eli Apple. And then the grounding play is just horrible. Now, they would make up for it the next play with that crazy throw, and Jacoby Myers ends up catching the deflection. But all in all, I felt like not a great game from Mac. But I do hope that this game for Mac sort of gets him going in the right direction in terms of the attitude in this game was better. He wasn't constantly bitching to the sideline. They actually showed him at one point during the broadcast going up and down talking to the guys. So it did feel like the demeanor from Mac Jones was better, and that's something you'd like to see going forward. So big development today from the Patriots is the Bill O'Brien story. Because what that tells you is, and not that we thought that Matt Patricia would be back in year two, but that's major. The Patriots need to upgrade the offensive coordinator position. It's clearly hindered any progress the quarterback could have made. Now, maybe it turns out that Mac doesn't take a step forward in year three. But I'd like, I'd like to at least see Mac with competent coaching. And so far this season, he doesn't have competent coaching whatsoever, right? Like, I've admitted I've never been the biggest Josh McDaniels fan but at least I could say Josh McDaniels is a competent offensive play caller. What the Patriots haven't had all season long is a competent offensive play caller. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we're going to chat with Nora Princiati from The Ringer and you read her stuff on TheRinger.com as well. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. ba 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 Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the Ringer NFL show, you read her stuff at the Ringer too. I had a great article this week on the Patriots. It is Nora Princiati. Nora, Merry Christmas. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Merry Christmas. Uh, uh, phoning in from Concord, Massachusetts here. So very happy to be with you on this Christmas Eve in Massachusetts. Yeah, and what a game. I mean, that's one of the craziest games I think I've really ever watched. Like at the beginning of the game and the entire first half, it looked like the Patriots had no chance whatsoever. I mean, Joe Burrow was doing everything that he possibly wanted to to the Patriots defense. And then all of a sudden in the second half, you get the Marcus Jones interception. And then it feels like there's no way the Patriots are going to lose this game. Ramondre Stevenson fumbles it at the five yard line. But the mixed emotions and just the roller coaster of emotions in this game were wild. Yeah, well, on one hand, I want to give them some credit. Look, I wrote this this week that I think their season's over. I think their season's been over for a long time before really paying attention I want to give the Patriots some credit for the fight that they showed in the second half and and not just fight in a sort of amorphous sense. I thought that Mac Jones cleaned up his body language. He looked a little bit less pissed off. They cleaned up some of the penalties. Obviously, they were able to come back um, and score a few points. And I do think that matters because before this game, I'm not surprised they lost. I thought they were going to lose. But before this game, my biggest worry was like, are we getting into everybody hates each other territory here? And it's good to see them try a little bit, you know, like the first half made you start to question some of the buy-in stuff. So I don't think that there's, there's nothing to show for it, but at the same time, I mean, man, effectively the season ends on a fourth, fourth and 15 play. There's multiple offensive linemen downfield, which isn't that fitting, right? This totally (laughs) discombobulated, just like what the hell is going on out there thing where they're on the precipice and they just can't can't figure it out because of stupid stuff they do on offense. So I thought in that way, it all it all made a little bit too much sense. Yeah. And the fumble, too. I mean, that was such a painful way to lose, considering how they lost last week with Jacoby Myers throwing the ball backwards. And then Ramondre was, of course, part of that play. And then he fumbles the ball at the end of this game. So it's tough to watch that. And the other thing you mentioned, like we are getting close to guys hating each other. Kendrick Bourne. Matt Patricia hasn't liked him all season. Bill Belichick, for some reason, doesn't want to play him. The guy was really good for this team last year. All of a sudden, they play him. Because right what, away. he was late to a meeting one time <laughs> yeah. in August? Yeah, that's why. I mean, I guess that's the rationale behind it. But he gets a 29-yard run. He catches a ball in triple coverage. And the other thing about him is just like not just from the pure football part of it is he gets everybody going. Like when he catches a ball, it's like he likes to celebrate after. It feels like he brings that like jolt of energy and today it's like, oh, it only took us until what, week 16 or whatever it is of the season to actually give this guy the snaps that he actually deserves. And I, it, it, in some level, like I was excited watching it today, but at the same point, I'm getting mad. Like, it's where has this guy been? He's yeah. good. He's good. He's been good. You know who knew he was good? Kyle Shanahan. Kyle Shanahan loved that guy. They schemed up so much third down stuff for him. They schemed up red zone. Like, uh, that jet sweep, the the 30 yard, you know, when they had 60 yards at halftime and he was responsible for half of them, that play has been screaming at them all year. Like that's such an obvious play for Kendrick Bourne's skill set. And it's the type of thing that, I mean, look, I don't want to be hypocritical here because there were some Josh McDaniels years where it was like, all right, enough with the jet sweep, buddy. Like, let's chill out a little bit. But that was their bread and butter. That's the type of thing that he would have run to the cows come home. And it was, I'm totally with you. It's It's great to see them execute that, and it's great to see them come off such a a dispiriting situation against the Raiders and still show a little fight even after they get down. But at the same time, it's just so maddening because that's been there. That's been there all year, and they just haven't done it. 
Yeah, and you mentioned Mac earlier too, because I thought he had some better moments in the game today, but you mentioned the body language, and it had been such an issue the past couple of weeks. And look, everybody that watches these games gets frustrated with Matt Patricia in the offense, but it did feel like we were getting to a point where it was just way too much from Mac. And we heard Julian Edelman and Vince Wilfork came out, and they talked about how they didn't like Mac's actions. It did feel like at least he made an effort today to not do as much as that stuff during the game, because I do think that leaks into the other guys, and I feel like Mac Jones's lack of good leadership, if you will, was starting to hurt this team. Yeah, I mean, I've been in that situation, right? When you're frustrated about something and and you feel like those frustrations are legitimate. But at a, at a certain point, if you can't immediately change the situation, it just becomes counterproductive. And I'm on, I mean, you know, it, to the extent that we're picking sides here, I'm I'm team Mac in all this. I don't understand why Matt Patricia is in the situation that he's he's in. I think there is a fairly clear one-to-one of you have a guy who hasn't done this for a living on the offensive side of the ball who came off a terrible last stop and was inexplicably elevated to this really, really important position at a really, really important time for the quarterbacks development. And guess what? He's bad at this. Like, I, I couldn't understand why at, the, at halftime on the uh, broadcast, they were talking about like, well, maybe they'll bench Mac. No. Change the coordinator, or he's not the coordinator, but whatever. Demote Matt Patricia. This cannot be difficult. It cannot possibly be difficult. So just just to be very clear, that is where I stand on that issue. Yeah. That said, Mac had been overdoing it, and I give him credit for for it. Seemed like in the second half, he sort of went, "All right, I got it. I, I don't want to contribute to some some sort of squad wide rot." here and he, you could see him he was clapping in guys faces and he had a little bit more of a rah-rah thing going and and I, I I give him credit for doing that and you know what's so infuriating too about the Patricia thing is so Ian Rappaport has the reporting today and he has an article up about how the Patriots now it's a real possibility that they could bring back Bill O'Brien to be the offensive coordinator next season and in that article, he outlines the fact that, well, the reason he's not here now is because he promised Saban that he was going to finish finish out his two-year contract with Alabama. And I'm thinking to myself, if this is actually true, which I actually believe this is the Kraft camp putting this out there because they want some excuse for what's going on. But if that's actually true, like if they really didn't want to bring Bill O'Brien just because he was under contract with Alabama, aren't there other people you can go after like across the NFL? It's only one guy that you would bring in. If you can't get that guy, you're going to have Matt Patricia. It just doesn't make any sense to me. The thing that I've heard, which is equally dumb in my personal opinion, is that they didn't, it didn't work out with, with O'Brien and they didn't go for it because they were worried that he would do a good job and then get another head coaching opportunity which, first of all, I'm not so sure about that. Second of all, should you be so lucky that your offense <laughs> is so good that, that you know, NFL teams from far and wide are knocking down the door to hire your offensive coordinator? Like, uh, my kingdom for them to be in that position right now. It's, it's just, I heard that in the, in the um, spring and the summer and just thought that it was unbelievably silly. And so, you know, maybe it's a little from column A, a little from column B, but uh, if he was willing to do that, if they could have had Bill O'Brien in there, say what you will about the guy. He's a professional at this. He's done this before. He knows what he's doing. Matt Patricia does not know what he's doing at this. They're still, I mean, for goodness sakes, uh, the Cincinnati defense is really, really, really banged up right now. And they were still able to get a considerable amount of pressure. And for all of the the hours in practice that I must imagine 
this team spends practicing the quick stuff, they're not very good in blitz pickup. Like, it's, no, the number of things they do badly is staggering to me. So should you be so lucky to have Bill O'Brien even just for a year? And what a sentence. Well, that's incredible. Like, if that was the idea that, hey, while Bill may get a job, that means we're going to have to give Mac another offensive coordinator the following season. So they felt the alternative of this competition between Matt Patricia and Joe Judge was the better way to go about it. And it's not like that's going to hurt the quarterback or his progress whatsoever, because I still continue to come back to the fact that now I feel like you almost I don't want to say I don't know if the word mulligan's the right word to give Mac Jones, but it's almost like you wasted a year of trying to assess the quarterback and try to get him to uh, progress as a player. You really wasted that year because the guys that were in charge of the offense were just so bad at it. It's just it's infuriating that their thought process was that was a better idea than Bill O'Brien or somebody else. Like, I, I never understand why they'll never go outside the family tree, especially when it gets to this point. Like Sean Pate right now, he's they're trying to he's trying to get back in the NFL and he's going to have Vic Vangio be his defensive coordinator. It's like, well, Bill, you're a great defensive mind. Why don't you get an established offensive mind so you don't have to worry about it? I thought that, you know, I used, I think, a tweet that you had in um, the Patriots story that I wrote last week comparing Max stats at this point to the Patriots offense with Cam Newton and the fact that they are statistically indistinguishable at this point. And not only does that matter because, yeah, you didn't get any better. You don't know. You don't know if he's the guy you mm-hmm. thought you knew through the better part of last season. But the fact that that has become less of a closed case over the course of his second season, that's really bad. Like the, the primary objective of a team with a young quarterback is to win games while that guy's cheap and, and do as well as you can while you have that window. The secondary objective is to find out as much as you possibly can about that guy and learn whether or not he's, he's worthy of the massive financial commitment that you're going to have to choose whether or not to make. And I don't think the Patriots took even like the tiniest step in in either direction here, because I really have a hard time blaming Mac. I mean, I think he's proved that he's not, you know, a massive elevator. Like I think Burrow earlier on in his career is actually a good, good comp in that when he was in just a, a bad offensive situation, you could still tell a little bit more that he could be an elevator. He hasn't done anything like that, but I, I, I just am really reluctant to criticize him too much given the situation that he's in. He could have done more, but he he could have done a lot less too. Yeah, well, and Nora, it's interesting, too. So obviously something is going to change, right? It can't be Patricia. Even if it's not Bill O'Brien, somebody else has to be calling the plays for the Patriots next year. And not that Patriots fans care about this, but I am wondering, like, what do they do with Matt Patricia? Does he just get, like, reassigned? Because he's not going to go to the defensive side because they have Steve Belichick and they have Gerard Mayo. So is he just going to be like a consultant on the defense and go back to his role where he was somewhat involved in the front office where, like, his signature was on a lot of things and he was given credit for the Devontae Parker trade. Maybe that's part of the reason that Kendrick Bourne wasn't playing and Devontae Parker is playing so much. But I don't know what they do with Patricia. Maybe they try to make him like the next Ernie Adams or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think that is the biggest question for the Patriots offseason because he's a liability and players have hurt the team far less significantly and, you know, been benched and have never been seen, seen or heard from again in Patriots history. And we just don't have a lot of precedent for what happens when it's a coach and not just any coach, right? Like a a guy who 
I think we know enough by now to to know that Bill sees Patricia as a bit of a reflection on him because the one weakness in his legacy is the coaching tree and is also a really close personal friend. There haven't been a lot of coaches who have been let go in, in recent years from New England, mostly because they've had no reason to, right? The team has been really good. But that also means that they haven't tested the waters of what does it mean to make coaching changes when you have your two kids on the staff, right? Like, what does it mean when when people have those sorts of, well, are, are we all on an even playing field here? And I'm not suggesting anything about uh, Stephen Bryan, right? Because it seems like they're doing relatively well in, in their roles. They are not the issue. Yeah. But it's a complicated situation. Um, and I think... They're probably in a weird way. Lucky is not the word, but the fact that it's been so stark on offense this year, I think means that that craft is going to be a big influence in this, or at least how much craft wants to influence the situation is going to be a big influence in what happens. So maybe it won't just be, you know, Bill, do you have it in you to, to say, Hey, Matt, we're taking it away. Uh, we're taking the play sheet taking the pencil too while we're at it. Like, thanks. Thanks for your service, but no, thanks. Um, I, I, I don't know what'll happen. I'm really curious to see. I think it, when you watch it, it feels like how could they possibly stick with this guy in any meaningful thing? But I, I just would caution anybody to, to remember how much history those two have and what a close personal friendship they, they have and how little evidence we have that, that, um, of what they do in this kind of situation. So we'll find out, but I'm, I'm very curious. Well, yeah. And it's interesting too, just because of the fact that Bill is wrong right now for doing what he did, promoting Matt Patricia. And by removing him from that position, he's going to have to admit that he was wrong about something just a year into it. So that's also something that's going to be difficult for Belichick to admit. And speaking of which I remember Kraft, what two years ago was talking about how much money they spent in free agency. And it's interesting that it's born the guy that they got for a good deal on the field today. Aglor wasn't on the field. And you think about the two tight ends they spent a ton of money on what the combined cap hit is like north of $24 million. And today Hunter Henry goes out of the game by running into Jonu Smith. It kind of just tells you like it's an indication of what that money to those two tight ends were like. You're paying the most money in the NFL to tight ends. And neither one of them is that dependable. Like, I actually like Hunter Henry as a player. He was good for them in the red zone yeah. last year. And like he's a fine player, but he's definitely not worth the contract. And the Jonu Smith thing, that's just an incredible whiff from their perspective. That guy over two years has pretty much given them nothing. Yeah, those are the types of things where I liked both of those moves. So I'm like, oh, well, you know, I mean, come on. They couldn't have seen it coming. What could have possibly happened? But it's true that it it... It hasn't worked out the way that you want. The owner's obviously, you know, looking at the checks that he's signing. I also think, though, that it's all part of this this holistic picture, right? Like if you use your receivers in a different way, maybe that takes a little bit of little bit of pressure off the other guys. Maybe the whole thing fits together in a way that just works slightly better. I mean, I, I think it was the third Cincinnati touchdown. Um Right after halftime-ish, I think, uh, it was the T. Higgins, um, right before their touchdown, the T. Higgins catch in the red zone. Mm -hmm. He was like seven yards open. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of a time the Patriots have had a single guy that open like all year. It just just was like, oh, man. 
there nothing is easy um so I I don't know my my brain right now is just so much in this space of the offense is so holistically broken that it's very hard to like go down the line and be like well if if Hunter Henry had worked out better if Johnny Smith hadn't been such a complete and total whiff like uh, yeah a lot of things could have been different but where I start is you're one of the better play action teams in the league and you don't use it. Um, the, the, the commitment to shotgun is baffling. The commitment to the screens additionally baffling the penalties, you know, uh, the first, I, uh, that was one of the commendable things about the second half, right? Is that they, they cleaned it up a little bit. Um, but six or eight penalties in the first half of this game, some of that stuff is like start there and then we can get to complaining about some of the contracts and and some of the moves that they've made um but it's a long list it's a long list of grapes well it's a very fair point too like it didn't make any sense that they were really good as a play action pass team last year mac jones was really good at it. you go from 26 percent of his dropbacks down to 16 and the screens are infuriating especially the game that sticks out to me I know coming into the week, he had the third highest rate of his dropbacks being screens, but the Arizona game, he threw 13 of them. It's like, I don't know if they're trying to catch him because they blitz a lot. Whatever you guys were doing, it wasn't productive whatsoever. So this commitment to doing that makes no sense to me whatsoever. But entering the offseason now, because the Patriots are in that sort of area, what do you think they'll do in terms of they do have a lot of money coming off the books? They are going to have money to be able to spend this offseason. Where do you think they put it in offensively? Is it the line? I mean, Trent Brown's been not good. Isaiah Wynn was not good. And then he was injured. Or do you think that Bill will actually go after a weapon again? I mean, I always wanted them to go after one of the premier guys last year in terms of the trade market, the AJ Browns of the world. They weren't in on that. But where do you think they'll put the money next year offensively? I mean, I think they need both. I'd start with the offensive line, but they still need speed at receiver. So whether you make the, the bigger commitments to on the offensive line side of things, just because I think that's the type of thing where you got to stabilize that, right? You got to stabilize that before your offense is just going to work. Um, particularly if they would, would inch back to what they've been more effective at, at proving that they're good at, right? Which is this like under center run the ball type thing that, that they've been able to do somewhat effectively. I think you got to shore up the offensive line. Um, first, but I'd still like like to see them add someone speedy um, just because, I mean, look, we've we've been seeing uh, say what you want about Mac today. He was testing the deep ball. Um, they didn't yeah. get all that much from it, but he was testing it. He was throwing it. Yeah. And I will say this. It was at least an entertaining game for the first time in a while for the Patriots, where I guess the Raiders game was somewhat. But the comeback was interesting. Like I had this whole thing planned about, hey, this is a more shocking comeback than the 28 to three comeback because it was Mac Jones in this offense. It looked like the worst in the NFL compared to Tom Brady. But now I can't even use it. So I'm just maybe I'm just mad that I was like take committed to that and I can't use it. But at least it was somewhat of a decent game. We'll see what they do next year in the offseason. It kind of stinks now that you get two games left that are essentially meaningless. I mean, if I'm the Patriots, I'm considering putting Ramondre on ice now because I don't want him to get hurt in the final two games of the season like especially considering how good he's been for the team he's been like your one real bright spot but I don't think they'll do that but better times ahead I hope Nora that is Nora Princiati from the ringer you hear on the ringer NFL show as well Nora thanks so much for hanging out with us on Christmas Eve we really appreciate it absolutely happy holidays guys 
Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back into Off the Pike after that crazy game from the Patriots, man. That was unbelievable. Great stuff also from Nora Princiati. Recap in this game and just looking forward to what's going to transpire next year in terms of the offensive system for the Patriots. I really did think they were going to win that game. How could you not? They're at the five yard line. All right, let's get to a couple of your calls. That number 617-396-7172. Hey, Brian, Mitch from Toronto here, giving you a call midway through the third quarter. And frankly, I don't think I need to see the fourth quarter of this absolute dog of a game. My question is this, and it's not a fun debate. Fill in this blank. This is the worst Patriots team since when? I'm thinking even the Cam Newton team a few years ago probably would have been better than this team after this absolute horrible, horrible last few weeks that they put up, especially when the season got into crunch time. My second question is where do we go from here? You know, we thought we had the quarterback position locked down. What do you think we need to do in the offseason? And is there any chance we get Bailey Zappi some minutes in the next few weeks to, to see if he can actually start to roll things out? All right, a couple of things. First of all, you had to watch the fourth quarter. You missed it, man. I'm sorry if you turned it off. The fourth quarter was electric. It was like one of the happy moments for the Patriots this season until the very end where it was the Patriots offense actually did something. The Patriots defense was making plays. Like, I'm sorry that you turned it off at that particular point in time. In terms of the worst season, you bring up the Newton year. That was pretty bad. I think this year is probably worse just because at least you had some expectations for this team. You didn't really have expectations for that Newton team. If you think about the Brady era, I mean, the only times what you didn't make the postseason was the Matt Castle year, and that team actually was over 500. They just didn't make it into the postseason that year. 0-2, Brady didn't make it into the playoffs his second year of the NFL, but he led the league in touchdown passes, and you did feel like, all right, you're on to something with Brady. So it's probably pre-Brady era in terms of if you're looking for the worst Patriots season since then, it's got to be pre-Brady era. So we're going back a long time. In terms of Zappi, I actually thought we may see him today. The way that that first half played out, and on the broadcast, Nora mentioned it, that they were talking about a Boomer Esiason uh, said that they should put Bailey Zappi into the game. So if Mac has a bad game in the next couple of weeks, maybe they do put Zappy in. But I do feel like Mac was better in the second half. Not to say like I'm throwing a parade for the guy or I believe that he's the franchise quarterback going forward. I just want to see him with competent coaching, quite frankly. And I've never been the biggest believer in Mac just because he's limited in terms of his skill set, doesn't have the big arm, not athletic, can't really throw the ball in the move and all that. I've never been high on him, but I just feel like the Patriots haven't given him a fair enough chance to prove he's a franchise quarterback or not. All right, who's up next? Hey, Brian, Jesse from Chicago here. Uh, finally, we can move on from this miserable season and focus on the draft uh, upcoming. You know, as I was getting angrier and angrier watching that game, I realized that this might just be what it feels like to be a normal fan, and we're spoiled. And Patriots fans are extremely spoiled. Do you think this is what it feels like to be a normal fan of the NFL, or is this an exceptionally horrible year? 
Thanks, Brian. Love the show. It's a really fair point. So I think in terms of, yeah, a lot of NFL fan bases feel this way. But in terms of how it's gone down this year, I don't think a lot of fan bases have the situation that the Patriots do where, (laughs) I mean, they just hired a guy to be the offensive coordinator. I should say promoted him from within to be the offensive coordinator, and he's never done it before. So this type of frustration with the coaching staff and the decisions the coach makes, ordinarily when this happens, like this three-year period, or really you can go back to 19, the situation in 19 was bad. The offensive line was bad. You didn't have weapons. You go back to the 19 draft that was horrible because you missed on Debo Samuel. You missed on A.J. Brown. You end up with Nikhil Harry. 2020, the Patriots are not prepared after they lose their franchise quarterback in Tom Brady. The plan originally was Brian Hoyer and Jarrett Stidham. And then they realized, oh, we can get Cam Newton. That doesn't work whatsoever. And then the Mac Jones draft, quite frankly, they got lucky. How many years in the NFL do you see five quarterbacks go in the first round? And there's just one sitting there for the Patriots 15th overall. They sort of lucked into the Mac Jones selection, if you will. It's not like they traded up, right? Like Chicago was active. They said, hey, we got to jump to Patriots. We want to get Justin Fields. That's the guy we want. They were active. They went after their guy. The Patriots didn't do that. Most of these teams do that. The Bills traded away picks to go get Josh Allen. The Chiefs traded away picks to go get Pat Mahomes. The Patriots lucked out. And then, okay, yeah, last year, good season. They make it to the playoffs, et cetera. But this year, the quarterback in year two takes a step back. So ordinarily, when that type of stuff happens over a four-year period, you're questioning whether or not the coach is going to be here long-term. That's what most fan bases would have that discussion. So I do think it's unique in that area because Bill Belichick has been here for 20 years and he's won six Super Bowls, but all that was with Tom Brady. So now we're in a different sort of stratosphere. So I don't think you can compare the Belichick situation to anywhere else in the NFL because he's built up that equity. He's built up that goodwill with everything he did for the organization. All right. Great calls as always. And if you do want to leave us a voicemail, make sure to do so. That number 617-396-7172. All right. I did want to get to some Celtics, of course, because huge game coming up Christmas night, five o'clock against the Milwaukee Bucks. Cannot wait for that one. But the Celtics are in a bad spot entering that game on Friday night against the Wolves. Now, they do win 121 to 109, and you like the fact that they bounce back finally, but I don't know what's going on with these first quarters because, again, it happens to the Celtics where now in four consecutive games, the Celtics have been horrible in the first quarter. Over their last four, they've been outscored by 34 points in the first quarter. That's 12 points worse than anybody else in the NBA. So it's horrible, and we saw it on Friday night where they scored just 22 points. The Wolves had that 29 to 22 lead, and they were 9 of 25 from the floor were the Celtics. So the Celtics, prior to this four-game stretch, they had outscored their opponents by 139 points in the first quarter. That was 38 points better than anybody else in the NBA during that stretch. So they've gone from the best first-quarter team in the league to the worst first-quarter team over the past four games. So I don't know why they went from, hey, we're coming out of the gates and we're flying, to basically sleepwalking through the game, especially considering... Friday night, you're coming off the bad loss to the Pacers. You're coming off the bad two losses to the Magic. And again, they're not ready to go. Now, fourth quarter, that's great. That's what you're looking for. But the first quarter thing is just aggravating to me. And you cannot have that happen against Milwaukee, right? So this is what I will say from a positive perspective. Jalen Brown in the fourth quarter just completely took over that game. He had the 23 points. And one of the things that sticks out to me, where I keep saying, less threes for Jalen is better. He's never going to be a great three-point shooter. Five of his eight made field goals were in the restricted area, and he had another four points at the free throw line. That's what I like to see from Jalen, just getting downhill. That's what he's so good at. The other thing I would mention is, if you look at it in terms of what Tatum did, 30 points in that game, he gets to the line 11 times, which makes up for the one for six from deep because he's actually getting points at the free throw line, and 14 of his 30 points came in the paint. 
So that means 23 of his 30 points came at the free throw line or in the paint. That's what I like to see from your star players. Getting to the basket. Take advantage of your strength. Take advantage of your athleticism. And stop falling in love with all these jump shots. Tatum is so good. We've seen the improvement this year when he gets to the basket. So I just like to see more of that aggression, right? And that's also sending the message to your opponent. Like, no, I'm going to be doing this all night to you. I'm not settling for jump shots, right? And if you're, think about this. If you're playing Tatum, what would you rather him do? Take those step back threes or get to the basket? Take the step back threes. I mean, as pretty as those shots look at at times, it's not like they're falling at a high rate whatsoever. Okay, so from a team perspective in this game, 24 fast break points against Minnesota. That's what you like to see. The Raptors, and when you're struggling in the half court, you got to get out and run. And the Celtics had the best half court offense for the majority of the season. It has not been great over the last seven games or so. So get out and run. The Raptors, by the way, they lead the league at 18.1 fast break points per game. The Celtics are at 24 on Friday night. The Celtics, by the way, 10th in fast break points per game. So big improvement there last night. And then you look at the 26 points off turnovers. The Seas are just 10th in the NBA in that category at 17.4. The Raptors first to 21.5. The Celtics are at 26. Now, I know Robert Williams didn't play, of course, on Friday. But going forward, I think that you can sort of increase the turnovers that you force because you can take more risks when Rob's out there because you now have that shot blocker in the back line. So I would expect those numbers to go up as well. And the Seas defense, it should be a weapon for them. And as great as the Celtics have been for the majority of the season outside of this recent stretch, Their defense has been solid for the majority of the season, but it hasn't been the weapon that it was a year ago. And I just hope they can use that more because when this Celtics team gets out and run, they've been really good. I mean, you look at the transition numbers, they've been way more efficient this season than they were a year ago when they run. All right. So I also look at this in terms of now getting ready for the game on Sunday. Is the Celtics season to me right now, they've had like three big tests, if you will. The first one was opening night against the 76ers. Remember, Everyone thought that Philly was a legit contender coming into the season, right? Because Harden was back and he was healthy and they had Embiid who had finished number two in the MVP race two consecutive years, right? And the Celtics, of course, opening the season without Rob Williams. So you felt like, okay, this is a big challenge for the Celtics. This is one of the only teams you're really worried about a true low post presence like Joel Embiid. I guess the other guy would be Jokic, but there's not a lot of teams you worry about that. Maybe Sabonis, I get he's hurt for the Kings right now, but you get my point. There's not a lot of teams that you're like, okay, shit, they're going to kill you down low without Rob Williams. So you're a little bit worried going into that game just to see what would happen. And Tatum and Jalen each go for 35. The Celtics had that outstanding third quarter. They outscored Philly 35 to 25. And after that game, he kind of had the reaction like, okay, this is probably the best duo in the NBA. And we looked at it like, oh, Remember how they were saying all this stuff about they were pissed off about losing in the finals to the Warriors and we wanted to see them come out of the gates with this unbelievable energy. They actually backed it up. They did. Like, you're like, all right, this is actually real. Like all this stuff Tatum was saying, Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, all this stuff is real. And remember, that was Brogdon's first game too, where he goes 7 of 11, 16 points. And you said, oh, yeah, this is an unbelievable trade. Like they stole this guy from Indiana. So that was sort of the first test of the season. And really... After that game, the Celtics go on a great run. They were on pace to be the best offense in NBA history. Tatum emerged as a legitimate bona fide MVP candidate. In fact, in the last straw poll that Tim Bontemps did for ESPN, he was number one on that list. And you felt like, okay, he's now in the family photo of the best players in the NBA. And you feel like, okay, this is the juggernaut of the league. So you felt really good after that first test. And then the second test came. And the second test was a failure. You go into Golden State and you're 21 and five. You're playing on the national Saturday TV game. 
and you want to prove to the Warriors that they don't have that mental edge on you anymore. They don't have that anymore, okay? You're the bigger, tougher team, and you're going to send them a message on national TV, and what happens? Well, the Celtics lose, and your best player doesn't play well. Jason Tatum struggled. He goes 6 of 21 in that game, and it reminded you of the Jason Tatum we saw in the finals last year. So the Warriors, after that game, they still had that mental edge on you. And how did the Celtics respond after that, right? So yeah, you beat the Timberwolves on Friday night to get out of the funk, let's hope. But the Seas are 2-5, and five, right, during this stretch since the Warriors game. They're dead last in offense during that stretch at 104.6 in terms of the rating. So as great as that stretch was at the beginning of the season, you proved opening night that you were going to be incredible. But since that Warriors loss, it's been the complete opposite. Uh, it's been the complete opposite of that. And you had embarrassing losses in there to Indiana, to Orlando, where you weren't ready to go whatsoever. So first test, you passed with flying colors. And after that, you proved that you're the best team in the NBA. But since the Warriors loss, you haven't proven that you're tough enough to come back and fight back from that adversity. It's been a real struggle for the Celtics, even that Minnesota game. I'm not super enthusiastic after that one. I thought the fourth quarter was great, but you're still not ready to play in these games. So then here comes the third test, and that's Sunday against the Bucks on Christmas Day. So first of all, the Celtics have to prove that this seven-game stretch was just a hiccup. And I know seven games sounds like smaller than just a hiccup, but you got to prove that you are the superior team to the Bucs. And remember, here's the interesting part about this. The Bucs want you. Remember, most of the national media was saying that the Bucs would have beaten the Celtics if they had Chris Middleton last year, and I would have been in that camp as well. But And I know Middleton's been banged up, didn't play Friday night against the Nets. He's barely played this season. But the Bucs want revenge on you, and you're going to need to match their energy on Sunday. They're coming off a loss too, but if the Seas don't come out with the necessary energy for this one, you have issues with the team. Okay, so you're not ready against Minnesota. You're not ready against Indiana. You're not ready in the second game against Orlando. How can you not be ready for this game against Milwaukee, right? What I want to see is this first quarter issue. It's gone on Sunday. The Celtics should come out with a ton of energy. It's going to be an electric atmosphere. And the other component is I want to see Jason Tatum outplay Giannis, right? He did it last year. Game six, he goes into Giannis's house. He has the 46 points. But the last time you had this big national TV game, this big spotlight, what happened? It was a complete mess for Tatum. And this is this opportunity, not just for the Seas, but for Tatum as well to prove, again, that he is a true MVP candidate. He's looked that way the most of the season, but not recently. I know he had a couple of big games here and there, but overall, he hasn't looked like the same player recently. And I do feel like this is one of those moments for this team. Either we're talking about, hey, you know what? Everybody goes through this. They went out to the West Coast. They didn't have a great time. They lost a bunch of games, but who cares? They just beat the Bucs on national TV. They're back to being the juggernaut, the wagon of the Eastern Conference, and we all feel good about it. Or the Celtics play poorly against Milwaukee, and then we're questioning a lot of things like, okay, does this team have the necessary leadership? Can Joe Mazzulla be the guy that turns this thing around for the Celtics team? Or are you looking at it as the Bucs are the superior team to the Celtics? The Bucs are the team to beat the Eastern Conference. So I do feel like for a regular season game, this is huge for the Celtics. And getting back to my whole theme of the three tests, I really want to see what they look like in this game tomorrow because this Bucs team, as we know, is no joke. It does feel like one thing I do enjoy about these two teams, it does feel like it's a legitimate, genuine rivalry. They've played a bunch of times in the postseason. Remember, they played... Even before Kyrie was here, they played that crazy seven-game series. Then they play the series where you win game one and then the Bucs win four in a row. Kyrie's trying to cover Giannis. And then you had that epic matchup last year. So it does feel like 
these two teams are on a collision course and you want the Celtics to come out with the necessary energy in this game against Giannis and company. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in that number 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudy for producing this podcast and we'll chat in a couple of days.